Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again. Uh, my name is Pastor Tony. I'm the campus pastor over at the Medina East Campus, and I've been sharing this series with Pastor Jeff called Reset. And if you guys are just jumping in this morning, if this is your first time here, you haven't been here in a while, basically what we're doing with this series is we've been talking a little bit uh, about the difference between Christianity and discipleship. And, and through this series, what we've been doing is we've been really kind of asking the question, what does it really mean to be a Christian? We've been trying to reset and go back to uh, what it originally meant to follow uh, Jesus Christ. And so we've been saying in our culture today that the term Christian is a term that's pretty vague. It's a, it's a pretty ambiguous term, and it can mean a lot of different things. And so if you ask someone, are you a Christian, uh, there are so many different presentations, there, there's so many different equations of what that means, that really you can make it mean whatever you want it to. And so through this series, I've been trying to reset and go back and say, what does it actually mean to be identified with Jesus, to be a Christian? And through this series, we said something real fascinating is that when you go to the Bible and you look up the term Christian, you look up that term, you find something fascinating. You find that that term, the term Christian, is only appears in the entire Bible three times. And when that term does appear, the term Christian, it's vague and it's ambiguous. It's kind of a confused term, even in the Bible. And so through this series, we said there really is a term. There's kind of a better word that's used to speak of those that identify with Jesus that's used in the Bible. This is a term that's used 294, terms, uh, 294 times, and that, of course, is the term disciple, the term disciple. And so we've been talking about the difference between the way our, our culture tends to understand Christian and what the Bible defines as a disciple. And we said the word disciple is really not only a lot more clear than the word Christian, we also said it's a lot more frightening. And the reason is because if you take the word disciple and you, you kind of figure out what it means in the original language, what you find out is this. The word disciple literally means to be a student of or a learner of someone else. Or to put it real simply, to be a disciple means to follow another person. And so through this series, we said that's pretty clarifying because discipleship is not, is not primarily interested in what you believe or how you behave, which, which we said tends to be the way that most people define Christian, right? If you ask someone, what is a Christian, most of the time they'll tell you it's someone who believes a certain set of things or it's a certain who behaves a certain way. And so it's, it's what you believe and it's how you behave. It's what you believe and it's how you behave. But we said discipleship is not concerned with what you believe or how you behave, but the primary concern of discipleship is who you follow. So it's not about what or how, it's about who. And so through this series, we've been talking about that. We've been talking about what it means to follow Jesus, not simply to, to believe a certain set of things or to act a certain way, but to follow the person of Jesus Christ. We've been trying to reset and talk about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, to know the heart of Jesus, and to follow Jesus Christ, to follow the man. So, so the, this series has been talking about a lot of different things, and I'm sure that as we've been talking about following Jesus and having a relationship with Jesus, that there's been one very pressing question that's probably come up in the minds of many as we've gone through that, and that's this. How can we today in 21st century America have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Right? That's a good question because we're talking about how you know, Christianity, how following Jesus is not simply about what you believe or it's not about how you behave, but it's about following a person. And the question is then, how do, we, how do we have a relationship with Jesus? How do we know Jesus? Because it's not like it was 2,000 years ago, right? When Jesus and his disciples were walking the planet, his disciples, if they wanted to have a relationship with Jesus, they could have went up to him. They could have asked him questions in real time, face-to-face as a person, right? Because the person of Jesus Christ was with them. And so this idea of having a relationship with Jesus and following Jesus, in some senses, we may think was easier for them. So the question is, how do we do that today? How do we know Jesus? How do we communicate with Jesus? How do we know the person 
of Jesus Christ. And you know, it's interesting, when you go in the Bible, the Bible gives us a lot of different ways in which we are to know and understand the heart of God. And so the Bible talks about, for, for example, the importance of prayer and how prayer is an essential pathway into not only understanding the heart of God, but also communicating with Jesus and knowing his heart. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about the Holy Spirit and how when a person accepts the invitation to follow Jesus, that the Bible says they're filled with the Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit helps guide and direct and transform the life of a person who follows Jesus. But one of the greatest ways that we can interact with God and we can know God's heart is through the Bible. It's one of the greatest ways. That's, that's what I actually want to stop and talk a little bit about this morning is how the Bible is a pathway to understanding the heart of God. Now, now listen, here's my guess. All right, this is just my guess. My guess is there's probably many people in this room who are either familiar with the church or maybe you grew up in the church. And I understand not everyone grew up in the church and everything. But for those of, for those of us who kind of grew up in the church, my guess is when I say that one of the primary ways that we can get to know Jesus and we can interact with Jesus and connect with Jesus is through the Bible, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, that's basic, man. Like, I already know that, right? But, but and, and my guess is this, maybe for some of you even, maybe you kind of grew up in a church where they would say things like this, right? They would say things like, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, right? And maybe you grew up in a church where there was a kind of a high view of the Bible. Uh, there was a, it, was, it was put on a, on a pedestal, and, and, and they would say things like, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And there was kind of a rigidness uh, about the Bible. Now, now, here's the thing, right? Now, of course, of course, of course, as a pastor, I'm going to tell you that studying the Bible, reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, and living by the Bible, living by this book, of course I'm going to tell you that that is an absolutely essential avenue to getting to know Jesus and following Jesus and knowing his heart. But I do think, I do think that there is another side to this conversation that oftentimes is not had. That's the conversation that I kind of want to have today, and that's this. I think that if all of us were honest, if we looked around at the current landscape of our culture, and I believe if we looked at history, one of the things that we would see is, is this, is there have been many people, many people, who have lived their lives by this book, who have committed themselves to this book, who have memorized this book, who have studied this book, who have decided to live their lives uh, by this book, and have ended up in some very weird places. Right? You think about history, for example. You think about how many things have been done in the name of this book that are very weird, that are very strange, and let's be honest, sometimes very abusive. Right? Just for example, you think about the history, you think about the Crusades. You think about the Inquisitions. You think about the witch hunt trials that were done in the name of this book. You think about the infighting and denominationalism. And, and listen, we have to ask this question. We just have to. How can it be that so many people who are so committed to this book have ended up in so many different places throughout history and in our culture today? And this is what I want to do today. What I want to do today is I want to build a case, and I want to build a case for this, and, and this, is, this is what I want to build a case for, that you can believe the Bible, you can study the Bible, you can memorize the Bible, you can even live by the Bible, and completely miss what the Bible is all about. All right, so that's what I want to build a case for. You can study the Bible, learn the Bible, memorize the Bible, live by the Bible, and totally miss the point of the Bible. And that's what I want to kind of build a case for today. And the way that I want to do that is I want to start by, by taking you to John chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, if you grab them with me, go to John 5. That's where we're going to kind of start off today, John chapter 5. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have some out there for you. It's, uh, John 5 is found on page 742 in those Bibles. And now we're just going to be kind of parking ourselves in this one passage this morning. And so I'd really encourage you to get a Bible in front of you if you can. 
Uh, if, you, uh, if you don't have a smartphone or you don't have a Bible in front of you um, and your neighbor does, share with them. If you don't know your neighbor, it's a great opportunity to say hi in an awkward way. So uh, share a Bible with them or whatever. Uh, John chapter 5 is where we're going to be going and uh, we're going to be planting ourselves. Now as you flip to John chapter 5, let me just give you a little context as to what's happening in John chapter 5. Anytime you read the Bible, it is so important to learn what the context is. Context helps determine the meaning of Scripture. So here's what's going on in the Gospel of John, right? The Gospel of John is a gospel, which means it's an account of the life of Jesus. That's what the Gospels are. And in the Gospel of John, what we found so far from chapter 1 to chapter 4 is that Jesus has started his ministry. Uh, Jesus has been healing. He's been preaching. And he's been growing in popularity. What we see in, in the book of John is that as Jesus is growing in his popularity, there's also a growing tension and a growing hostility between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders of his time. Now, in particular, there was, there was two religious leader groups uh, that Jesus had a lot of interactions with that were very tense. That would have been the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So John chapter 5, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that there's an event that happens that causes this unbelievable tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders, and it results in an argument. And there's an argument between Jesus and these Jewish leaders, and it gets heated. And so I want to take a look at this passage, but what we're going to find is that the content of the argument that Jesus has with these Jewish leaders is really about how you read and how you understand the Bible. All right, so we're going to take a look at this together. So let's, let's look, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. John chapter 5, verse 1. Let's start right at the beginning. It says this. It says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, now here's what's going on, right? So Jesus goes to Jerusalem, the Bible tells us, and he goes to this place called the Pool of Bethesda. Uh, now, some of your, your Bibles might include this. Uh, they might talk about the fact that at Bethesda, there was a superstition. And the superstition was this, that, that the pool, whenever it would bubble, it was a spring-fed pool, and so every once in a while it would bubble, and whenever it bubbled and the waters were stirred, the superstition was that the first person in the waters was healed. That was the superstition. So what happened was hundreds of people, hundreds of paralyzed uh, people, hundreds of sick people, hundreds of blind people with all types of different ailments would surround this pool. And then whenever it would bubble, it was like a race to see who could get in first. And if they were lucky, maybe they would get healed or something. And it was kind of a superstition. So Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda. And there would have been hundreds of people who would have been sick, who would have been diseased, who would have been paralyzed, all laying around there. And Jesus comes into the setting, and he comes up to this one man, to this one man. I want you to take a look at what happens, verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years, meaning he had been paralyzed for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Right, which to you and I sounds like a pretty obvious question. Ask someone who's been paralyzed for 38 years and waiting by a pool. He comes up to him, he says, you want to get better? And the response of the man, verse 7, uh, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So essentially he looks at Jesus and says, I don't have anyone to help me. No one can help me. And then watch what happens in verse 8. This is so awesome. And then Jesus said to him, looked at him and said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once, the man was cured, and he picked up his mat, and he walked. I mean, how incredible is this? Man had been paralyzed for 38 years. I just want you to think about this for a minute. 38 years. Right? That, that means that this guy 
would have been like a public fixture in Jerusalem. He was sitting by this pool for an extended period of time for 38 years. So everyone would have known who this guy was. Right? If you were from Jerusalem growing up and you walked past the pool of Bethesda, you would have seen this guy. He'd been there for 38 years. You would have known this guy. The religious leaders would have been familiar with this invalid who had been there for 38 years. And so Jesus comes up to this guy. He says, do you want to get better? And he says, I have no one to help me. And then Jesus, with one command, with one command, undoes what has been this man's reality for 38 years. And he gets up and he walks. This is an all-out, full-on, hallelujah, praise Jesus miracle. Guy gets up, starts walking. And you would think, you would think that everybody would just be so excited that this guy is walking, right? But the story, the story takes a turn. And I want you to notice the turn that it takes. Look at the second part of verse 9. It's the beginning. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. Right? And, and this, this actually would have been a really big deal to the first century Jewish person when they realized this happened on a Sabbath. And the reason is, some of you might know this, if you've studied Judaism or if you've read the Old Testament enough, you probably know uh, that for the, for the Jewish person in the first century, and even today, they, they took the Sabbath very, very seriously. As a matter of fact, there was a very, uh, a very specific, strict set of rules and regulations of what it meant to keep, uh, to keep the law of the Sabbath. So, so, so basically, here's what happened. In the Old Testament, God gave 10 commandments, right? One of those 10 commandments was God said to his people, I want you to keep a Sabbath, meaning I want you to work for six days, and then on the seventh day, I don't want you to work anymore. No working on the Sabbath, right? You shouldn't do any work. Rest on the Sabbath. And that was a commandment that God gave his people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, as a way of honoring him. He said, I don't want you to work on the Sabbath. That, that day needs to be holy unto the Lord, and I want you to rest. That's what God said. Now, here was the problem with that commandment. God never explained in the Ten Commandments what it meant to not work. He never said, this is work and this isn't work. He just said, don't work. And so what happened was, over the course of several thousand years, the Jewish leaders, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, developed very specific rules of what it meant to keep the Sabbath. And they called this rule book, they called it the Mishnah. And the Mishnah, if you've ever read it before, it literally is uh, thousands of very specific situations on which they would say, this is what it means to keep the law, and this is what it means to not break the law. So let me just give you an example. All right? As it relates to this one law, to keep the Sabbath. The, uh, the religious leaders in the Mishnah, they developed 39 different categories of what it meant to work and what it meant not to work. Right? So for example, the categories would include things like no reaping, no sowing, no harvesting, no baking, no cooking. 39 different categories of what it meant to work. Right? Now underneath each one of these 39 categories, there would have been hundreds, if not thousands of very, very specific situations that they would spell out and say, this is work and this isn't work. And it got very detailed. So let me just give you an example of how detailed it got. One of those 39 categories in the Mishnah on what it meant to work was this. You were not allowed to carry. You weren't allowed to carry. Specifically, you weren't allowed to carry things in public. Right? So, so, so I'll just, just kind of give you a couple situations of how specific this got. Uh, one of the arguments was like hair clips, right? Ladies wear hair clips. Um, that the argument was, do, do women wear hair clips or do they carry hair clips? And so this was a law that they made. They said, when you're, when you're at home, women are allowed to wear hair clips. But if you go into public and you have a hair clip, you've just broken the Sabbath because you're carrying something in public and you're working on the Sabbath. Therefore, you've broken the law. Just to show you how specific. Here, here's one more. All right? So let's say you're, you're on your way out the door 
And uh, on your way out, you grab a mint or you grab a piece of gum and you pop it in your mouth. Or if you're like me, you grab a piece of your kid's Halloween candy, which my kids went trick-or-treating three times this year. They did, they did good for daddy. So, so I, let's say I grab a Snickers, I throw it in my mouth, I walk out the door. At home, I'm fine. But if I go into public and I have that in my mouth, according to the, 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 the Jewish rules, I've broken the law. I've broken Sabbath because I'm carrying something in my mouth. Just to show you how specific these guys were, they created, and this wasn't in the Bible, this was extra biblical, but these guys created thousands of of exacting rules of what it meant to keep the Sabbath. And I want you to keep that in mind, because here's the law they created, and Jesus looks at this man who had been an invalid for 38 years, and he looks at him, and he says, I want you to get up, he says, I want you to walk, and he says, I want you to carry your mat. So you can see the problem there, Right? It's, so I, want you to, I just want you to get a full picture of that. This, is, this, this next part to me is just mind-blowing. So, so here's Jesus. He comes up to this guy at the pool of Bethesda. The man had been an invalid for 38 years. The guy has never walked for 38 years. And Jesus asks him, do you want to get better? And the guy says, no one can help me. And then Jesus says, get up, and I want you to walk. And the man does. He gets up. And he starts walking for the first time in 38 years. Can you imagine how excited this guy must have been, man? He was probably dancing. He was whistling. He was like, new legs, Lieutenant Dan. You know, he's just so pumped. He can walk. And he gets up. He picks up his mat, just like Jesus says. And he starts walking home. And I can imagine he's probably so excited. He's whistling. He's just pumped. Everyone's like, can you believe it? The dude's walking. And the Bible says that he, he begins to walk, and he walks past the Jewish religious leaders, and I want you to notice their response. This is mind-blowing, mind-blowing. Look what they do. Look at this, verse, verse uh, 10. It says, and the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. And what? What? I mean, is anyone else catching the absurdity of this? This man, who they would have known, who had been paralyzed for 38 years is walking up to them and he walks he walks past them and the first thing that they notice is they're like um technically you're not allowed to be carrying your mat today because it's the sabbath and according to section 7 article b of our laws what what right is anyone else catching this, this is ridiculous I want you to notice this. These, these Jewish leaders were so focused on keeping the law. They paid so much attention to that. Listen, they were so focused on his mat that they missed the miracle that Jesus had just performed in front of them. So the Bible says what happens next is just, we, we don't have time to get into all of it, and I would really encourage you to read it because this next part is really fantastic. But basically, these guys get mad. These Jewish leaders get angry. And they're like, who told you that you could pick up your mat and walk and go home. And, and he's like, I don't know, I don't know. And then they find out it was Jesus. And so the Pharisees and Jesus get in this argument. I mean, it is a heated argument. I want you to read it this week if you get a chance to. It's pretty incredible. Anyone who says the Bible is boring has, just hasn't read it because it's ridiculous. And the, the argument happens. But I want to show you the summary of what Jesus says in particular in verse 39 and 40 because this is so powerful. I want you to notice what Jesus says to these guys. They argue back and forth and back and forth and then finally Jesus says this in verse 39. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. He said, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me yet you refuse to come to me 
to have life. See, see, and all of a sudden, in two verses, we are awakened to a very important reality. And here's the reality that Jesus is pointing out to us here, is that you can know the Bible, you can study the Bible, you can memorize the Bible, and you can live by the Bible, and you can totally miss the point of the Bible. Right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, history tells us that these guys would have most likely had the entire Old Testament memorized, the whole thing. Every letter, every punctuation mark, every jot, every tittle, the whole Old Testament, these guys would have the book memorized. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you know the book? You believe the book? You, you're the type of people that would say the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And he says, and you missed it. You missed what the whole book is about. You see, I believe that in our culture, that you and I, that we can commit the exact same thing that the Pharisees did. That we can believe the Bible, study the Bible, live by the Bible, and completely miss what the Bible is all about. So with the rest of the time that we have left, let me, let me just do this. I want to try to break this down for us today, what this means for you and I. So for the rest of the time, let me just do this. I want to give us three things, three things that we tend to think the Bible is about that it is not about. Three things that in our culture, we tend to think the Bible is about that it is not about. And then I want to close by giving you the one thing, the one thing the Bible is about. All right, so let's just go through these together. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down if you'd like. Here's the first thing that the Bible is not about that we tend to think it is about. Uh, first and foremost, the Bible's not about me. The Bible is not about me. And here's what I mean by that. Okay, I put a clarifying sentence underneath that statement. Here it is. The Bible is not simply a therapeutic, inspirational book designed to make me feel better about myself. That's not what the Bible's about. So, so let me just put it another way. The Bible is not a book of quotable quotes. It's not an inspirational, therapeutic, chicken soup for the soul type of book. It's not what it is. And in our culture, there's a growing belief that the Bible is a book about me to make me feel better about being me. And, and that's not what the Bible's about. I'll tell you, I, I'm surprised sometimes being a pastor, I, I get a chance to talk to a lot of different people about the Bible, and I'm surprised sometimes what people think is in the Bible. I remember this, this one time, several years ago, I was serving in the college ministry, and there was, I was talking with a group of college students, and there was a girl that was part of this group I was talking with, and she had just, she had just started following Jesus, right? It was just awesome. She was just so excited about Jesus. Of course, that, just, that got me all amped up. And so we're talking, and she said something in the middle of this conversation that just kind of took me off guard, you know? So we're standing there, and there's a group of us, and we're all talking about this event that we're about to do as the college ministry. And this is what she said. She said, I'm so excited about this event. She said, it reminds me a lot of that one verse in the Bible. She's like, you know that one verse where it says, if you build it, they will come? <laughs> and and I, I, I was like, oh, man. Um, and I didn't say anything because I didn't, want her, I didn't want her to feel stupid. Some of you are like, that's not in the Bible? <laughs> but, but I remember she said that, and I, remember I, I didn't want to make her feel stupid, so I didn't say anything. I was just like, oh, yeah, that's a good verse. Um, but in my mind, I was thinking, yeah, that's not in the Bible. That's in the field of dreams. <laughs> you know? I'm like, that's totally not. But, but all of a sudden, I was awakened to this, this, this important idea that a lot of people think that that's what the Bible is. It's kind of this book of inspirational, feel-good, you know, chicken soup for the soul type of thoughts. And, and, and listen, I want, you to, I want you to hear me right on this, okay? The Bible is for me, okay? It's just not about me. And there's a big difference between those two things. And, and I don't want you to hear me wrong, because is the Bible comforting? Yeah, absolutely. Is it inspirational? Absolutely. 
The Bible is very inspirational. I would even say the Bible is therapeutic. I would say that without a doubt. But that's not what it's about. Right? It, it contains those things. So there, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that as our culture, they are very inspirational, they are very ther- therapeutic, and we love those verses. Right? So for example, you guys remember 1 Corinthians 13? It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And we hear that and we're like, yeah, love that verse. Chicken soup for my soul, right? We love it. We love that kind of stuff. Or what about Philippians 4.13? You guys know that one? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What a good verse. Is that a good verse? That's a good verse, right? We take that verse. We memorize that verse, right? We're like, I want to ask that girl out. I can do all things through Christ. I'm going to try to bench 300. I could do all things through Christ. And we, we love those kind of verses. Or what about, what about this one? Remember Philippians 4, 6 to 8. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things with prayer and supplication through thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And some of you guys need that verse this morning, right? Is that a good verse? Yeah. Is that inspirational? Yes. Is that comforting? Yeah. See, and we'll memorize those verses We'll tattoo those verses in places. We'll, we'll put those verses up on the walls at our nursery. We'll get them etched on pillows because they're good verses. And should they be? Yeah, they should be. They should be. But, but you see, the reality is we have to realize there are other verses in the Bible, and they are not chicken soup for the soul. And there are many. And I'll, I'll just give you an example of one. There's a ton. And, and I actually picked a pretty tame one. But this is Amos chapter 5. Just listen to this. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. He's like, it stinks. Right? He's like, away with the noise of your songs. He's like, stop singing. All right? He says, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness, righteousness like a never-ending stream. You're like, that's not comforting. That's not chicken soup to the soul. That's like a spoonful of wasabi. That burns, man. You're not putting that verse on the nursery wall. And so the, rea- the reality is we have to realize that in our culture, what we tend to do is we take these verses that are therapeutic, inspirational, comforting, and we're like, we love those. And then we take verses like Amos 5 and a lot of the things that we see in the Bible, and we say, well, those are just hard. And we reject them. We say, we're going to ignore these. We're going to focus on these. And for many people, in fact, for some of you, even if maybe today you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe for you that's one of your big struggles. You're like, I don't, know, I don't understand how, how God can be so loving, but then at the same time there's this whole part of him. And maybe that's a, maybe that's a conflict that you face. But, but listen, the reality is I think one of the reasons we struggle with that is because we, maybe we think the Bible is about me. The Bible's for me, okay? It's not about me. It's not about me. Right, so three things that we tend to think the Bible's about that it's not. First thing is the Bible's not about me. Here's the second one. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's not about you. And here's what I mean by that. This, that's just a clever way of me saying this. The Bible is not ammunition to support, my, to support and defend my preferences, privileges, and prejudices. Right? The Bible is not ammunition for me to support and defend my preferences, my privileges, and my prejudices, or my political views for that matter. Right? And, and, and I think that I, I could probably give you examples on this. I probably don't need to. You probably already know people like this, right? Where, where, where there's a person that takes the Bible and uses it as a weapon 
to beat people over the head and tell them why they're wrong and why they, are, why they and Jesus are right. right. And so that they take the Bible and they, they have their ideas, their preferences, their privileges, their prejudices, and they find passages of Scripture to help support their preferences, their privileges, their political views, and their prejudices. And they, they, it does not matter if those verses are in context. It does not matter. So they'll take a verse, they'll rip it out of context, they'll use it as a way of proof-texting their own opinion, and they'll say, you see, me and Jesus are right, and you're wrong. And they'll beat you over the head with it. And like I said, my guess is, I don't need to give you many examples, because you can already think of examples of times that this happens. Here, here's a really extreme example. Let's give you one very extreme one. But the Ku Klux Klan, right, the KKK, some of you might not know this, they were founded by a group of people who believed in this Bible. It was a group of men who would have said, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Right? What they would do is they would take these obscure passages in the Old Testament and they would rip verses out of context and they would use it as a way of justifying their prejudice. So, so, so listen, the Bible is not a tool, it's not a weapon to be used against others. God did not give us the Bible to be right. It's not why he gave us the Bible. So, so the Bible is not for me. I mean, it's not about me. The Bible is not about me. It's not just to make me feel better. The Bible is not for you. It's not ammunition that I can use to defend my views, my privileges, my preferences, my prejudices, my political views. And here's the last one. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is not about us. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible is not a set of rules and regulations necessary to earn God's favor. All right, let me put it this way. The Bible is not a, a, a rule book full of do's and don'ts, that if you do the do's and you don't do the don'ts, that you will be considered more righteous than others, and that you will be accepted by God, and that you can earn your way and earn your favor to God by keeping his rules and regulations. I'll put it this way. Here's another way to put it. The Bible is not the story. It's not the story of humanity's ascent to God. Right? The Bible is the story. Rather, we're going to find this out in a second. It's actually the story of God's descent to man. The Bible is not, is not a book of human heroes who have done an awesome job at being really good and have earned favor with God. That's not what the Bible is about. It's not about us. Right? And that's what the Pharisees believed, right? That's what the Pharisees believed. The, the Pharisees were so focused on the law, on keeping the law, on keeping the Sabbath, on keeping all of the little intricacies of, 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 of the Sabbath and of the rules and of the laws of the Bible. They were so focused on that, right, that when a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, walks up to them, walks up to them. They're so focused on his mat that they miss the miracle, right? These Pharisees, these guys were so focused on keeping the law. They were so focused on, on keeping all the intricacies of, of even their own projected religion and what they invented that when the Messiah himself was standing five feet in front of them, they missed him. They missed him because they were so focused. And they missed the most important thing of all. They missed what the book is all about. I think about it like this. Let's say that you and I, after services, let's say that we're out in the lobby and we're talking, all right, just the two of us. And let's say you come up to me and we're talking movies. I love movies. We're talking movies. And I'm like, what's your favorite movie? And you tell me what your favorite movie is. And, uh, and it's a good movie, I'm sure. And then you're like, what's your favorite movie? And I'm like, my favorite movie is Rocky. Love Rocky. Now, that's not true. That's not my favorite movie. But let's just say for illustration's sake, my favorite movie is Rocky. And you're like, well, which one? Which Rocky is your favorite Rocky? Let's say I'm like, I love all of them, all 50 of them, however many there are. 
And, and you're like, you're like, wow, that's, that's, really, that's a good movie. I, I mean, it's a really good movie. And what if I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I love Rocky. And you're like, yeah, right, you said that already. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I love Rocky. And you're, you're going to be like, I'm freaked out. I'm going to get my kids and go home. Uh, but but, if I, but what, if, what if you found out that I was like obsessed with the movie Rocky? And I'm like, I have seen every Rocky movie a thousand times. And I have every scene memorized. I have every wardrobe memorized. I have every cast member memorized because I memorized the credits, right? And you're like, wow, you need to get a job. And I'm like, I love Rocky. And let's say that just be, let's say you're not too freaked out. And so you're still engaging conversation and you're like, hey, you know what my favorite scene of Rocky is? And I'm like, which one? Because I know them all. And you're like, my favorite scene is like that classic scene. You guys remember the classic scene in Rocky, like the one that's, that's most notorious where he's running up the stairs in Philadelphia. You remember that? Running up the stairs in Philadelphia. All the kids in the community come surrounding him, which that happens to me all the time. And, and, and he gets to the top of the stairs. Remember, he starts pumping his fists. And the music is like, da da na 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 And it's awesome, right? And let's say you're like, that's my favorite scene. And I'm like, and what if I was like, ah, I don't know what you're talking about. And you're like, you remember the, the, like the most famous scene in the movie when Rocky runs up the stairs, pumping his fist? And I'm like, not sure we've seen the same movie. What if I was like, I remember stairs. I, I actually remember that there was 847 stairs exactly because I memorized them all. And I remember the kids. I remember all the kids coming around something. I remember them, though, because I remember what they were wearing. I, I actually know all their names because I memorized the credits. I actually know what they're all doing today today, you know, and I, I remember, and you're like, yeah, yeah, well, that, that was all fine, but do you remember Rocky? Rocky? There's actually like a statue up there of Rocky. What if I'm like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. And then let's say you're like, come on, man, come on. Remember at the end of the first movie, the first Rocky, when he fights Apollo Creed? Remember that? And at the end, he's like, remember that? And what if I was like, ah, not ringing a bell? What if I was like, I remember Apollo Creed? Because I own a pair of shorts just like his. But, uh, but I, don't, I don't remember. And you're like, come on, man, Rocky, you know, the Italian stallion. And I'm like, me? You're like, no, not you, Sylvester Stallone. Remember? Right. Dude, the movie's called Rocky, right? And what if I was just like, I, I, I just, I'm not tracking with you at all. That's ridiculous, right? Listen, listen, here, here, here it is. You ready? The Bible's not about me. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's not about us. Here's what the Bible's about. The Bible is about Jesus. That's what the Bible's about. Rocky is about Rocky, right? It's about Rocky. The Bible, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. I I want you to notice something. Look again at the verses, verses 39 and 40, what Jesus says to these guys, these guys, these Pharisees. He says to them, you you guys study the scriptures diligently. Get it? You You guys know the Bible by memory. You memorized it. You know every jot, every tittle, every punctuation mark. You know the whole thing. You memorized it. You know all the stairs. You know all the names of the kids. You know all the wardrobes. You know all the soundtracks. You've memorized every scene of the movie, right? It's like you guys know it. And then he says, but you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Everything, he says, in the book adorns, testifies about me. So here's what we've got to understand about the Bible. The Bible is not a book about therapy. 
It's not a book about psychology or anthropology. The Bible is not a book about doctrine. It's, it's not a book about, about theological systems and systematic understandings. The, the Bible is not, it's not a, a code of ethics. The Bible is about a person. The whole book is about him. Because here's the truth. Here's the truth. Therapy can make you feel better, but it cannot save you. It cannot save you. Doctrine can make you right, but it cannot save you. Right? Ethics can help you live an upstanding life, but it cannot save you because only Jesus, the person, can save you. And so Jesus looks at these guys and he says, you guys are so focused on knowing the Bible, memorizing the Bible, living by the Bible, but you missed the point. You missed the point because the book is about me. You're like, you're like the whole book? I'm like the whole book. You're like even the Old Testament? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely Old Testament. As a matter of fact, that's what Jesus and the Pharisees were fighting about was the Old Testament in this passage. You're, you're like, when's the first time the Bible mentions Jesus? I'm like Genesis 1.1. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, because Colossians tells us that all things were made by Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus. It's the first thing. When's the first time the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to die on the cross for our sins? When does the Bible tell us that the first time? Uh, about three seconds after the first sin took place in Genesis chapter 3. You guys remember this? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned for the first time, and God looks at Satan, and he curses him. You remember what he says to him? He says, there will be a descendant that comes from the woman, and you will bruise his heel, his heel, meaning you're going to injure him, you'll crucify him, but he is going to crush your head. What's that talking about? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. How about this? Uh, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham comes on the scene, right? Abraham was the OJ. He was the original Jew. And, uh, and so he looks at him. <laughs> And he says to Abraham, he's like, hey, out of you, out of your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to bless the nations. What's he talking about? Uh, Jesus. How about this? Exodus. Remember when the Israelites were in Egyptian captivity and they cried out to God, save us, deliver us from our plight? And so God sent an angel of the Lord to strike down every firstborn child in, in the Egyptian land. You remember this? And he tells the Israelites, his people, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sacrifice a lamb. I want you to take the blood of that lamb. I want you to put it on the doorpost of your house. And then when the angel of the Lord comes and he sees the blood on the doorpost, he'll know to pass by your house and you'll be protected. You will be, listen, saved by the blood of a lamb. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Is that ringing any bells? It's, it's, a, it's a picture of, it's an anticipation of, it's a portrait of Jesus and I'm telling you, listen, we could do this all day. I could go through the entire Old Testament. If I had a stronger voice and I, and I had more energy and you guys had a, a bigger attention span and football wasn't happening this afternoon, we could literally go all day and talk about how the whole Bible is a testimony about him. As a matter of fact, Jesus did that. You guys might remember the, the coolest Bible study in the world. If there was one Bible study I wish I could have sat in on, it would have been in Luke 24. Jesus rose from the dead, which that's awesome. Jesus hangs out with his disciples, and he's like, let's make some fish. And they have a little fish fry. And then as they're having this fish fry, the Bible says Jesus opens up the Bible, and starting with Moses and the prophets, meaning starting in the Old Testament, he walked through passage by passage and explained how everything was about him. 
about him. The Bible is not about me. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is about Jesus. It's about a person. It's about knowing Christ. So listen, let me, let me just close with this. I want to give you two questions. This is sort of a practical acid test for you, all right? Of, and here's the question. How do you know you're reading the Bible correctly? All right, so I want to give you two questions. This is an acid test for you. How do you know you're reading the Bible correctly? Okay, I didn't, I didn't put this on the PowerPoint, but if you're taking notes, you can jot this down if you want to. Here, here's the two questions that I want, I want you to ask yourself. Here's number one. When you read the Bible, if you read the Bible, does it point you to Jesus? When you read the Bible, does it point you to Jesus? I mean anywhere in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, epistles, revelation. Does it point you to Jesus? Okay, because all of the scriptures testify about him. All of them do. And so does it point to Jesus? Is it an illustration of Jesus? Is it an anticipation of Jesus? Does it help you see your, your, your sin, which reveals your need for a Savior who is Jesus? Right? Does it point you to Jesus? Because here's the truth. If when you read the Bible, it doesn't point you to Jesus, you took a wrong turn somewhere. Because the whole book, Jesus says, is a testimony about him. So does it point you to Jesus? Here's the second question I want you to ask as an acid test. When you read the Bible... When you read the Bible, does it challenge you, surprise you, confuse you, and even at times offend you? Does it? I'll say it again. When you read the Bible, does it challenge you, surprise you, confuse you, and even offend you? See, and here's what I would submit to you. I would submit that if when you read the Bible, you're never challenged, you're never surprised, and you're never offended, that my guess is that you could be pretty sure that you're creating your own God. Right, listen, if you... If you have a God who always agrees with you, let me put it this way. If you have a friend that always agrees with you, you have an imaginary friend, right? If you have a God that always agrees with you, you have an imaginary God. You've created him yourself. See, the truth is the Pharisees were offended by Jesus all the time. These guys who had the entire book memorized, they would, Jesus offended them because Jesus did not fit into their systematic approach of viewing God. They did not have a box for Jesus. And so because they didn't have a box for Jesus, they rejected him because they didn't agree with their, with their preferences, with their privileges, with their preconceived notions of what they believed God was like. And listen, if Jesus is a person, which he is, if he's a person, and this book is about knowing a person, then just like any relationship, there should be times that you're challenged, that you're surprised, that even sometimes you're offended. I think about it like this. When I, was a, um, when I first started here at Grace Church, I was an intern um, working under Ezra Wimberly. You guys know Ezra Wimberly? He's the guy that leads worship here oftentimes at Grace. And uh, when I first met Ezra, it uh, would have been eight years ago now, I remember the man was an anomaly to me. And he still is a bit of an anomaly to me. But I remember when I first met him, he confused me. He was confusing me. First off, he kind of looked like an Ewok. He's a fuzzy man. Kind of, uh, so, so he kind of, but, but he was like, if you guys know Ezra, he is super creative. He, he's unbelievably talented, and he's an unbelievably hard worker. And so I remember I respected him right out of the gate, but he confused me. And what confused me was his sense of humor was strange to me. He, he thought certain things were funny that I didn't get. And I remember there was times that I would be talking to him, and I would say things that I didn't, I didn't, and I didn't think were funny. But he would just like start laughing hysterically. And I remember I was like, I'm scared. I don't know what to do with this man. And, and, and then he would get mad at certain things. And, and I don't mean like, you know, pick up stuff and smash it mad. But I mean like, I would, I would see that sometimes he would get frustrated. And I remember I would get confused. 
Like, I don't know why that makes him so mad or I don't know why that frustrates him. And he surprised me at times and he confused me at times. Even at times I would say that he offended my sensibilities. Right? But then over time I got to know Ezra, the person of Ezra. And I got to know his heart. And I got to understand what made him tick, what made him laugh. I, I kind of got to, I recognized what, what he thought was funny. And I started to think it was funny too. And I got to know his heart. I got, I got to understand the things that made him frustrated. And I began to realize something about Ezra. And this is what I realized about Ezra. Ezra is a man who loves Jesus and he loves Jesus' church. And, and I began to realize that the things that would make him frustrated were oftentimes things that, that, that would probably make God frustrated because it was either against Jesus or against his church. And I started to learn the heart of Ezra. Listen, if, if we read the Bible and it doesn't confuse us, surprise us, and even at times offend us, then I think we've got to be realistic. If God always agrees with you, you're probably inventing him. Because the truth is, when you read Scripture, there should be times that you're like, God, I just, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know why you would do that. God, I'm so, I'm so surprised here. I mean, they're so shocked. And even sometimes, God, that offends, that kind of offends me. Because if I was going to do it, I would do it this way, but you're doing it this way, and, and, and I don't understand it. Listen, if that's happening when you're reading the Bible, I can almost guarantee you you're dealing with the real Jesus. Because he's a person. He's a person. The Bible's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about knowing him, understanding his heart, and following him. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and as they kind of settle in and close us down, I just want to close by giving us uh, one challenge for everyone in the room, and then we're done. One challenge. So whether you're a person who's been coming to Grace for a long time, maybe you've been a Christ follower for a long time, or whether you're a person this is your first time here, maybe you're a stranger to church, maybe someone dragged you in, pulled you in, I don't know, maybe you're like, I'm not even sure what I believe about Jesus. It's fine. Here's the one challenge I have for everyone in the room. Here it is. I challenge you to read the Bible every day this week. Every day. All right. Now, for some of you, you're already doing that. Great. Keep doing it. If you're not, my challenge is to start reading the Bible every day. And I would encourage you, if you don't know where to start, start in the Gospel of John. That's the Gospel we are reading today. Start there. If you don't have a Bible, take one of ours. It's a gift from us to you. Take it. Read it every day. And here's all I want you to do. Every day when you read it, I want you to get out a notebook or open up a note app, if you, if you do apps. At the top of your note page, I just want you to write this one question. This is it. What does this passage tell me about Jesus? That's it. If you're in the Old Testament, write the same question. If you're in the New Testament, same question. What does this passage tell me about Jesus? And jot down the things that you see. And I think you will be shocked that when you begin to realize, when you begin to approach the Bible as a way of knowing the heart of Jesus, how things will start to come together. All of a sudden, it'll synchronize. And you'll see that the whole thing is a testimony about him. I challenge you to do it. I'm not going to follow up with you, so just do it. And be blessed. Let's pray. Jesus, I just want to say thank you that um, you've given us the Bible because you, you didn't leave us alone in this world. You didn't just create us and leave us. But you gave us access to you. And Father, you really have given us every opportunity through the Bible. And you, you've made the Bible so available to us, Lord. It's, we have it in so many translations. It's on our phone. If, if we don't want to read it, it reads itself to us. That's pretty amazing. So, Father, I ask you that as we, as, we, as we follow you, as we learn what it means to truly follow you and know your heart, Lord, that you would awaken us to the reality that the whole book is about you. Jesus, why do you want our obedience? You don't want our obedience so that we can feel better about ourselves. 
You don't want our obedience so that we can be right. You don't want our obedience so that we can earn our way to you, Jesus. You want our obedience so we can know your son, Jesus, and bring joy to his heart. So I ask you, Father, that today, as we go from this place, Lord, that you would help us, give us a passion to know you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.